Lord, we thank you for your word, and we do ask that tonight that you would open up our hearts to receive what you want to say to your children. We thank you that it's relevant, that it's powerful, and that it has application for us right now. And so we ask that you would just bring that application, bring clarity into our own hearts to understand what you are saying to us and how we need to respond. God, we want to worship you by obeying your word. And we pray that you would just have your way with us tonight. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the epistle, we're coming into really the last stretch of letters that are written for the church. And so, you know, it's December, you kind of get to that season of the year where you start thinking about like, okay, what happened this year and what do we get done and what do we want to do next year? And, um, you know, as we come into First John, we kind of realize like we have covered a pretty massive amount of territory this year on Wednesday nights. We've covered the letters to the churches, the letters of the Bible that were specifically written to Christians who believe in Jesus Christ. And the whole Bible is that. But portions of the scripture are either history or uh, testimony or the story of what God is doing. And there's, uh, there's immense value in that. But what we've been this year really is, is the application. Just straight up, you know, pastors writing to the church saying, here's what, you should look, here's what your life should look like as a response to what Christ has done. And it's really just been a great, uh, a great chance, I think, for all of us as a church to step back and say, okay, what does that look like? What is, uh, what is the call of God on my life? What is the call of maturity on my life? What is God calling me to as he calls me to know him more? And uh, I think my encouragement to all of us is, is more or less finish the year strong. We're getting into uh, the last, really, four books of, of epistles, and then uh, beginning of the year we'll dive into Revelation. But, you know, First John... Uh, has a very, we'll get into it in just a second, has a kind of odd opening that I think leaves a lot of people scratching their heads and saying, well, this book's too complicated. Um, and then second and third John feel really short, and you're like, I don't know what this is. Like, who's the lady? Uh, and okay, whatever. And Jude is just kind of uh, doing his thing. You know, he's, just, he's on some sort of role. He appears to be one of these passionate guys. And um, there's a, there's a temptation as, as you get through the epistles, you know, we all have areas where we like to park in Scripture, right? And sometimes it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's Philippians and Colossians, or oh, it's Romans, or oh, it's the Gospels. Well, it's the Word of God, right? So as we get to a portion, we get to park there for a Wednesday night, it's, it's an incredible opportunity for all of us. So um, we want to not lose sight of that as we come in. John, 1 John, really much like First and Second Peter, as soon as you say the title, there's a bit of a backstory, right? Because John is one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And in the scriptures, uh, he's part of a group of three of the disciples who had special access to Jesus. They were with Jesus more than the others. And you'll see it over and over again in the scriptures. Jesus went somewhere with Peter, James, and John. And he went somewhere with Peter, James, and John. And he went somewhere with Peter, James, and John. And some, some people take that to mean that these guys had special access because they were super spiritual. Some people take it to mean, and I think there's probably some validity uh, with this, that maybe they weren't the most mature as much as the ones who needed the most supervision. And maybe Jesus was like, you know what, the other nine are going to be okay. Um, you better come with me, guys, right? Like, like, you all understand, teachers and parents, there are certain kids who get to stay close by because they're doing really well, and certain kids who stay close by because somebody needs to keep an eye on them. And uh, as we look at the the personality of Peter and James and John, 
throughout scriptures, there's some good evidence to suggest that. You know, John is one of the, uh, the two brothers who Jesus nicknames the sons of thunder. There's a lot of noise and maybe not a whole lot of power during their ministry with Jesus. They're the ones who wanted to call down fire from heaven and burn up a city because it didn't receive Jesus. And I always wonder why Jesus didn't say, like, hey, go ahead and try. Like, 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 like you know, uh, I've never tried to call down fire on somebody. I don't think I could do it. I'm not positive, but I really don't think I could. I don't think I'd ever tell the Lord, like, oh, can I take care of this from here? I'll, I'll call down the fire. There's a bit of, you know, they're a little bit audacious. They're the ones who, but they're also kind of timid because um, they asked their mom to come and ask Jesus, hey, uh, can my two sons be like your favorite two people in all of eternity? Like when you come into glory, could my sons be on your right hand and your left hand, right? Like if you're talking to God and you're not sure what to do, just have your mom go in, you know, nice and subtle and, and just roll with it, right? And so James and John both, uh, they have this like, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of fire, a lot like Peter, a lot of fire, a lot of gusto, maybe not a lot of nuance, not a lot of uh, the fruits of the Spirit, but a lot of the works of men. And just like Peter, they forsake Jesus uh, the night he's betrayed. And in a different sense, but very much in the same sense, um, Jesus restores all the disciples except Judas. And James and John are there when the Holy Spirit comes. James and John go from guys who were just full of lots of fire but no power to men who are full of power and the power of God. And James is martyred pretty early on. But John winds up just being a faithful guy who just serves the Lord and just keeps going. John's going to be the last of the disciples to die. All the other disciples are martyred for their faith. John is the only one who doesn't get martyred, and it's only because uh, they weren't able to kill him. They tried. They tried dipping him in boiling oil, which normally tends to kill people. And the Lord didn't let it kill John. John gets out of it. They say, well, stink. That didn't work. We're trying to, you know, we're trying to stop the gospel. We've got to get rid of this guy, John. So we're going to send him off to this island. Nobody can get to John on an island, right? Nobody except God who's going to give John a revelation of what the end of the world is going to be like. John just goes. And John is a guy who just serves the Lord and he ministers. And as he's getting towards the end of his life, he starts to write books. Because he's starting to see things as the church is growing and as the church is moving away, you know, as there's a, a smaller and smaller number of people who can say, I remember Jesus personally, John starts to see a need to say, okay, there's things we need to make sure we clarify here. There's things we need to talk about. And so as someone who had that access to Jesus, as someone who walked in that kind of fellowship, John has authority that he doesn't abuse, but he does take advantage of to say, hey, I'm in a position to tell you about who Jesus is. And so that's why he writes the Gospel of John. Probably uh, the last book of the New Testament ever written. That's why he writes the book of Revelation. That's why he's going to write First and Second and Third John. And so, uh, so First John is different. Second and Third John will be there in a couple weeks. They're letters either to specific people or specific churches. But First John is just a very broad-based letter, much like the Gospel of John. It's just written to really anybody who's willing to believe. Okay, and so John dives in, and he's going to give us. Uh, what feels like an obscure opening, and I think this opening tends to trip people up in the book. So I want us to get through it and then digest it and figure out what he's saying, and then we're going to keep going. So chapter 1, verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our eyes have handled, concerning the word of life. 
The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. So you're kind of like, well, what on earth is he talking about, right? Well, he starts off, is that which we've heard, seen, looked upon, handled, we've seen, we bear witness and declare to you, that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What is or who is the eternal life that was with God the Father and was manifested to humanity? Jesus Christ. John is just, he's, he's trying to describe Jesus, but he's running out of words. Okay? And that's what happens to any person who tries to describe the Lord. There aren't enough words. And so John, he's trying, he's trying to make some points, but he's getting a little bit lost in his own train of thought because how do you describe Jesus? And so what he's, what he's emphasizing here is that Jesus is real. Okay, so he, says, I'm, he says, I'm talking to you about Jesus Christ, the Jesus that I heard, that I saw, that I looked at, that I handled, that I've seen, I bear witness of. He says, we've seen it and heard it. He, he keeps talking about, like, I was with the real Jesus Christ. And he was a real person. And, and it's important because at the time that John is writing this, a false doctrine is starting to creep into the church called Gnosticism, which would teach that Jesus didn't actually have a physical body. And church heresy has always tended to sort of swing back and forth between diminishing Jesus' humanity or diminishing his divinity. Okay? Currently, we don't really have a lot of people who say Jesus never existed. We have a lot of people who say, oh, he was you know, a very good moral teacher, but he wasn't really God. Or he had taught good principles, or he was a good prophet, but... He wasn't God. That's, that's sort of the current train of heresy uh, overall. But as John is writing, there's a different train which says, oh, he was totally God. In fact, he was so holy that he never actually became a human. Which leaves major problems if a non-human didn't then die physically on the cross. There's, there's massive problems with that theologically. It doesn't work. But John is making an emphasis here. I'm writing to you about Jesus. And he says, Jesus is real. He's eternal, and he's approachable. And those two things matter back and forth. He says he's eternal. He says he was from the beginning. And it's a little hard for us to imagine this or don't even comprehend it because we can sort of wrap our heads around the idea of a soul going on forever. But everything we know in existence uh, that we can experience in a physical context has a beginning. Right? We understand that things begin. Life begins. The earth began. Everything has a creation except the creator. And so our minds can't even comprehend. This is part of why John is getting, feels a little abstract because he's talking about, okay, I'm talking about the one who was there before the beginning. And, who, you, know, and you think about that, or you try to because you can't comprehend it. You're talking about so much power and so much presence and so much glory, and yet he's also emphasizing, I saw him, I heard him, I touched him. He's emphasizing that I am writing a letter to you about Jesus, and I want you to know that he's real, but I want you to know the full extent of his reality. I am writing to you about Jesus Christ, who is God, without beginning, without end, unchangeable, forever, unalterable. I'm also writing to you about Jesus, the man who came to be the sacrifice for us, a, a man who physically exhausted himself serving people, who physically got tired, who physically would die, who would physically be afraid and stressed out at the night of his crucifixion to the point of sweating blood. 
Okay, I'm, I'm writing about an eternal God and an approachable God. And other religions don't do this for us. They give us one or the other. They give us a, an approachable God who's really just kind of a stronger version of us or this eternal thing that you can never know. But Christianity is one that says, no, no, God is massively eternal. He's massively more powerful, more glorious than you can ever comprehend. He's also vastly more approachable than you can ever imagine. That's who John is writing about. So this is a letter about Jesus Christ. And he's writing it, he says, in verse 4, that our joy may be full. John is writing a letter so we can have joy. So let me tell you something. If you don't have joy in your life, or if your joy is kind of like half full, right? This, this letter is for your joy to be full. So if you look at your life and you're like, you know, my joy is not full. Let me encourage you. We're coming up on a new year. It's a great, New Year's are, it's kind of a dumb time to make resolutions because everybody makes them with absolutely no intention of keeping them. But it's sometimes good to say, I'm not making a resolution. I'm resolving. Okay, I'm resolving. If, if, if your joy is lacking, let me encourage you, resolve to read the book of 1 John once a week for a year and see what happens. It's five chapters. The longest chapter will probably take you five minutes to get through. Five minutes a day, five days a week. You've got two days to mess up every week. You get through the book of 1 John 52 times in 2024, and you see what the Lord does with your joy. But John wrote this book for that reason. So if you're lacking joy, go to 1 John. Now, what John's going to do so he kind of gave us his intro. Jesus is real. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is approachable. This book is for you to experience joy. Now John is going to give us three main points about God. And that's, that's really the whole book. Okay? He's going to emphasize to us that God is light, God is love, and God is life. And so tonight we're really primarily just going to get through the first one. Okay? But God is light, God is love, and God is life. And John's going to explain to us what these things really mean in the context of who God is. Because if God is these things, it's important that we don't say, okay, I'm going to determine God by what I think love is. It's I'm going to determine love by what God is. I'm not going to determine light or how I see the world. I'm not going to determine who I think God is by how I see the world. I'm going to let who God is determine how I see the world. Okay, so that's where he's going to start. So verse 5, he says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So he says, okay, I want you to know something. God is light and in him is no darkness. So if we're going to understand, so I love C.S. Lewis once said, I believe in God like I believe in the sun. Not because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. And that's really the emphasis that he's giving us here about the character of God. God is light. By understanding God, you will be able to understand everything that you need to see. If you have God, if you have Jesus Christ, then you will be able to see all you need to know. You may not know every mystery in the world, but you will know everything you need. Because God is light and in him is no darkness. And understand, no darkness doesn't mean very little. It means no darkness. So now he says, okay, God is light. There's no darkness in him. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we're lying. 
and we don't practice the truth. So it's possible to claim one thing in Christianity and act another. Okay, so he says if we, if we say we're walking with him, but we're walking in the darkness, that's a lie. But if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with each other. And it's, if, you, if you read it, it's kind of bad grammar. It's, it's sort of an incomplete thought, if you will, because he says basically, look, if you say you have fellowship with God, but you walk in darkness, that's not true. But if you walk in the light, you have fellowship with, and you would expect the next word thing to be, you have fellowship with God. Right? It, it, he's, it's a contrasting thought, but John ties walking in the light with fellowship with other believers. And it's interesting because, you know, Jesus said, if you want to know the two greatest commandments, the first is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus connects knowing God with your love for other people. He says the two are, are tied together, and John's doing the same thing here. The result of walking in light is fellowship with God. That's kind of implied. But John's making a point. Hey, don't lose sight of the fact that walking with Walking in the light with God is going to manifest. You're going to see that reality as you have fellowship with one another. Now notice also, as we read, you know, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You can't read 1 John without feeling at least a hair nervous about your salvation, right? Because he's like, if you say you walk in the light and you have sin in your life, you're a liar. You need to repent. And you're like, ah, I, like I repented. I ask the Lord to forgive me, but I still sin. And so it's important to understand, and, and I just I bring it up now because it'll come up over and over and over again through the rest of the book. You've got to remember that John is writing this book in Greek, okay? And that matters because when it gets translated to English, English is very time-oriented as a language. Okay, if I'm telling you something, the emphasis is on when it happened. Okay, it either did happen, it is happening, or it's going to happen. All right, well, Greek is a little bit different, and I don't speak Greek or write Greek or know Greek, but uh, as translators explain it, Greek, the tense is different. And so Greek, as he's writing these ideas about walking in light and walking in darkness, it's not so much a, are you, did you do it? It's a, are you walking in it continually? It's a continuous present tense. Okay, does that make sense? It's almost like if I say water is going over the waterfall. I didn't say a drop is going over the waterfall, because if I say that, then very quickly it will be done. But if water is going over the waterfall, well, when did the water start and when did it stop? It's just kind of doing it continually. And John is making that emphasis when he's talking about walking in sin or walking in light, walking in darkness or walking in fellowship with God. So when he says here in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. Or when he says if you walk in the light as he is in the light, or if we walk in darkness... The idea is a continual, habit, habitual walk. Okay, so he's not saying if you stumble or if you make a mistake after being saved, oh, you're damned to hell. No, he's saying if you stumble, you stumble, repent. But if you are walking in a lifestyle of unrepentant sin and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to walk with the Lord, I just want to have salvation and then do my own thing. He says, no, you're a liar. You're walking in darkness. And, and I can say that we can say that with confidence because he says, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us. If we walk in the light, his blood cleanses us from sin. If we walk in the light, we are in a process of being cleansed. So there is still sin in our lives as we walk in the light. 
but he is in the process of cleansing us and removing it and taking it out of our lives. So when John, so just, it's important to understand it, because otherwise you read the book of 1 John, and you can walk away with this massive uh, guilt and condemnation in English that isn't meant to be there in the original Greek, because the emphasis is not on, if you made one mistake, you're, you're in trouble. The emphasis is, are you walking with the Lord, or are you walking in the pursuit of your own flesh? Chapter 2. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So if your joy is not full, I'd encourage you to read First uh, John for a year. If you want to not sin, reading First John for a year might not be a bad idea either. Verse 3, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as we walked. So he's just making a, a really a basic point. And this is what Paul emphasized, what James emphasized, it's what Peter's emphasized, and that is if you know God, you will want to be like God. If someone says they know God and they have no desire to be like him, then they don't know him. They're demonstrating that they have no idea what they're talking about. Right? I mean, it, it would be like, uh, imagine if you're having a conversation with somebody, hypothetically, in a small town, and they say, boy, I just love Donald Trump. That guy is just like the best. He is the best, you know. And everything about him is just perfect, and I love his policies, and it's, it's just, you can't get enough of him, right? And it's, it's big, it's beautiful. Nobody does Trump like Trump, you know. Uh, and I have to say, frankly, I was very surprised when he lost. It was a stolen election, very rigged, very unfair. And you say, well, who'd you vote for, Joe Biden? You'd say, wait a second. You just told me you love Donald Trump, but you voted for Joe Biden. There's a disconnect. You either don't know what you're talking about, or you're insane, or you're lying to me, right? Because if you, if you make a statement and then contradict it by your actions, you didn't actually believe what you said. So if you say you know God, you're going to walk with God. So verse 7, he goes on. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John says, guys, I'm not writing you anything you don't know. I'm writing you an old commandment. This has been around for a long time. You know this. If you know God, you'll want to be like God. You'll want to know him more and walk with him. But he says something interesting. He says, the old commandment is the word. The Old Commandment is the Word of God given to us. But he's, John does this funny thing, and John kind of, he just does these through his books. He says, I write no new commandment to you but an old commandment. The Old Commandment is the Word. Again, a new commandment I write to you. He says, guys, I'm not writing anything new. Here's the new thing that I'm writing. And you think, well, wait a second. You just, what, what's going on here? Well, what's he say? He says, the Old Commandment is the Word. The words of God written for us are the, are the, old, the old commandment. We understand that the truths about who God is and how we walk with the Lord have been written down for us, and they have been there for a long time. But 
the new commandment is the sense in which we have a greater understanding and fulfillment of that word through getting to understand that Jesus Christ came as a man and lived and died and rose again. So he's, he's making a point that it's, it's really, it's new, but it's also old. And if you take it back in your mind to John 1 verse 1, what does John say? He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John says the old commandment is the word, and he makes an implication that the new commandment is, is sort of the revelation of Jesus in the world. Well, what is Jesus? He's the word. He's the message and the messenger. So John says, look, we've got something new, but understand it's also something old. And it's, it's the words of God for us. The message that Jesus is telling us through his word. Here's the thing. If you want to know an absolute, irrefutable, unmovable truth that's been true for all of human history that's not going to change, no matter who's in power, no matter which countries are on top, no matter whether there's war or peace, where are you going to find that? In the word of God. If you want something that is fresh, and relevant and speaks to your life today exactly where you're at in the situation you're at with the pain and the suffering and the heartache that you're going through, where are you going to find that? In the Word of God. The Word of God is the old commandment and it's the new commandment. And John says, look, I'm not writing you guys anything new, but I'm writing you something totally new. Because the Word of God is old. The newest part is almost 2,000 years old. But it is fresh every time you come to it. It's one of the oldest uh, intact books in human history. And it's still brand new every time you open it because God wants to speak to his people through it. It's old, but it's, it's, it's always brand new. And so John, he's just encouraging us. Look, if you want to have your joy be full, if you want to not sin, if you want to know God more, if you want to walk in the light, where are you going to find that? In the word of God. And now he's going to go on, and he's going to give us sort of a, I guess it's a poem or a song. Um, it doesn't rhyme, but that's okay. A lot of the great ones don't. Um, but he's going to give us basically sort of three categories of Christian uh, referencing like, spiritual maturity. And he's going to make some comments about them. So he says, I write to you, verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who was from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So John identifies basically three periods of growth in the Christian life. And he, he emphasizes them all twice with a little bit of a modification. So he emphasizes little children, young men, and fathers. And these aren't necessarily age categories, they're maturity categories. So he says, look, I've written to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. If, if you're new to Christianity, what do you know about Christianity? You know, Jesus forgave my sins. Died on the crossroads again, I'm forgiven, and I can go to heaven. That's great. Like, that, that's, I mean, you're saved. You're in the family of God. Like, that's, that's all you need. But you're still spiritually a young child. Right? And it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful season. Don't, don't ever sell it short. Don't miss it. Don't say, oh, wow, I'm, I'm a, you know. Don't, don't get frustrated in that. If you're a new Christian, you're a new Christian. You know, babies don't come out of the womb running marathons. It takes a little bit of time and prep and training. Okay? But then we grow up. 
So it's great to just like, what are you anchored on? My sins are forgiven. I'm not going to hell. Perfect. Great starting point. Fathers are a different age category. Fathers are a little bit older, a little more seasoned. They're also old enough to reproduce, right? There's a season of maturity in your Christian walk when, when your life needs to be reproducing. You should be, in essence, bearing children spiritually. And the, the, the mark on a father's life is what? That you've known him. There's a point in time at which what's going to define your walk with the Lord is, Jesus Christ forgave me. That's awesome. But there's a point in time at which, as you become an older Christian, what's going to define your life, what needs to define your life is, I know God. I have relationship with God. I fellowship with God on a regular basis. I am one of God. I am friends with God. That's a different level of maturity, right? It's one of my favorite things in the world to do is talk to an old Christian who's just been doing it for a long, long time, and they've managed to not get bitter and not get burned out at church and at Christians in general, and they just, you know, they just talk, and it's like, you're just kind of talking, and they just talk about, you know, I was talking to Jesus yesterday, and he was telling me this, and I was arguing with him because I'm stupid, and he said, how about this? And I said, well, I could try that. I know Christians who talk like that because they know God, that, and that's sort of the defining mark of their of their Christianity. It's not that they're doing these incredible things. Just like Peter told us, you know, the mark of maturity is not what do you do for God, it's do you know God? And then he writes, and he's addressing sort of a, a middle period, if you will. He says, I've written to you young men because you've overcome the wicked one. There's, there's a middle period of growth, and what should be defining us is we're, is we're learning to walk in victory. We're learning, hey, my sins are forgiven, I shouldn't keep walking in them. And there's a temptation if, if you're you know, a little, a little ch- child, if you're one of the little children, a, a new Christian, there's a temptation to say, maybe I'll just park here, right? Because like overcoming the wicked one, like Satan's kind of big, you know? It's kind of a hassle to, to, to resist. I think I'll just kind of stay like, hey, I'm forgiven. John says, no, 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 no. Mature. It's time to grow up. It's time to start walking in victory. Because that's the middle step between your sins are forgiven and you know him. Is you're going to know him. If you want to progress to that status of like being a father in, in, a, in a spiritual context, you're going to do that through overcoming the wicked one. You're going to do that through walking in victory. And then he goes on and sort of emphasizes again, I've written to you little children because you've known the father. You know that God loves you. you you've, you've, that's what you've got. That's great. When they say they're in your fathers because you've known him from the beginning. Again, John's just like the mark of, an, of a mature old Christian. Being an old Christian is, is a fantastic thing. Everybody should want to be an old Christian. Okay? Never despise old Christians. The, the mark of an old Christian is that they know God. And then he says again, I've written to you young men because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the wicked one. If you've been a Christian for a while, okay, we, we're all always progressing towards, or we should always be progressing towards, I want to someday be an old Christian. But sometimes that's just gonna, that takes a certain number of years. It takes a certain number of time, and a certain amount of time, a certain process, and there's just certain growing pains that you're going to have to go through. But in the middle of that, when you're, when you're old enough to no longer be a child, 
and you're still not quite the old guy in the room, you should be marked by a couple things. You're strong. The Word of God abides in you, and you've overcome the wicked one. And he identifies that as, as young men. I think that's appropriate. Because think about young men. Okay? Um, what do young men like to do? They like to know that they're strong. They want to compete. They have a drive. You stick 10 young guys in a, in a room, sooner or later there's going to be an arm wrestling competition. Because we've got to know. Like, I don't care if I'm at the bottom of the pile. I just want to know where in the pile I stand. I want to know who's strongest, who's fastest, who's smartest. And it's, it's sometimes brutal, and it's sometimes just... You know, kind of, we're having fun, but we just like to, we like a little competition. We, there's, there's, a, there's a thrill in it, okay? We like knowing, when your body is at a, just a season of health, it's fun to use your body for the glory of God. But he says, you're strong, and he's making a spiritual idea here, okay? There's a season of life, spiritually, when you're going to have more energy than some of the old Christians, and you're going to have more maturity than some of the young Christians. Use it. Use it. Don't waste it. Don't waste your, don't waste your, your spiritual adolescence, if you will, trying to be either a kid who's refusing to grow up or being upset that you're not an old person. Use it. You've got strength and energy. Use it for the glory of God. Let the word of God abide in you and overcome the wicked one. There's a point in time spiritually, you know, there's, there's a point when, when boys quit playing with toy guns and they start playing with real ones, right? And sometimes you're like, maybe you should stick with the toy ones. Um, there's a point when you quit using plastic hammers and you start using real ones. There's a point when you start plugging in saws and actually cutting things. There's a point in time at which the tools get more dangerous and the stakes get higher and the results get vastly better, right? Because you're growing up. That's where we should be spiritually. There's a point in time at which young Christians need to become mature Christians. At which you need to realize this is not a game, this is a war. And you feel the sword in your hand, you feel the word of God and say there's power in this thing. I want to use it. I'm in war and I want to go to war. And I want to fight the battles that the Lord puts me in for his kingdom. Grow up as a Christian. Let the word of God abide in you. You want to be an old, faithful Christian who just knows the Lord? That's awesome. You're a young Christian who's just getting started? That's awesome. If you're in the middle somewhere and you're growing, don't stop. Keep growing. Keep going. The young Christians just drop out all the time. They quit. All the time. They feel like, this sword's kind of cool. There's a lot of power here. Wow, those enemies are intense. I think I'll just walk away. Happens all the time. The Lord is not calling us to that. He's, John, is, John is writing these things so that we can grow up. It's time for us to grow up as Christians. Verse 15. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. John says, hey, if you want to be a little child or a young man or a father in the church, in Christianity, you've got to understand something. The world is competing for your love. Don't give it. 
Don't give it. The world wants to attract you with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, with, with power and pleasure and possessions, with no limits. Where just the goal is to satisfy your instincts. And John says, you know what? That's, that's all passing away. If you live absolutely for yourself, what are you going to get? 85 years? Maybe 90 years of fun? Although, ironically enough, the harder you pursue your own flesh, usually the quicker you die, right? If you, if you really go full tilt, what are you going to do? 35, 55 years? And then what? What does it get you? Nothing. John says, you, don't, you want to grow up? Quit loving the world. The world's passing away. The world is going to burn. Everything in it, every possession, everything that is not eternal will be gone. So quit messing around pursuing those things. They're stupid. They're a waste of your life. They're a waste of your time. They're a waste of your energies. But remember this, that he who does the will of God abides forever. You want to see some real pleasure in life? You do the will of God. You want to see some real possessions? Store up treasures in heaven. You want to experience some real power? Walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? Elon Musk can't compete with that. Guy's got everything in the world and has nothing. Jeff Bezos, I mean, pick your famous rich person, right? Jeff Bezos. Bill Gates, what do these guys have? They got nothing. They have absolutely nothing. Oh, sure, they could buy the whole city of Boston if they wanted. I don't know why you would. I just heard one time that Bill Gates could buy the whole city of Boston and still have like $100,000 left over or something. I don't know. Like, what are you going to do with that much money other than just sit around and, and try and find ways to protect it and hire lawyers to make it harder for people to steal it? They have nothing. What do we have? We have everything. We have eternity. We have fellowship with Christ. You think you're going you're gonna to top that by pursuing a relationship or a selfish desire here on earth? John says, hey, you want to grow up? Quit loving the world. Verse 18, he says, Little children, it's the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest, that none of them were with us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. He says, listen, the Antichrist is coming. There is going to be one character in human history who will be known as the Antichrist. Be a man who exalts himself and tries to take the place of God during the Great Tribulation. But throughout history, there have been a lot of small Antichrists. Right? And John makes the point, any person who is opposed to Christ is what? Anti-Christ. Because there's, there's, you know, there's millions of them. There's going to be one who's the big one. But there's antichrists all over the place. And they're trying to pull you, and, they're, and they don't like you because you don't love the things they love. Because you're actually interested in growing up in Christianity, and they're interested in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so they don't like you. They're offended by you. And John says, yeah, that's okay. So what? You're going to let, don't let the world define who you are. The world cannot understand who you are. Why? Because God is light. The world is in darkness. Right? The world can't see 
where it's going. We can. And that's not cause to despise people on the earth. That's cause to pity them. That's cause to reach out to them. But understand, it's not cause to go along with them. The world is in darkness. The world is going to hell. John says, you've got the light. Don't let antichrists take that from you. Because, and then he goes on, I love it. He says, I'm not, I haven't written to you because you don't know the truth. I'm writing because you know it. The vast majority of the time when people walk away from Christianity, it's not because they didn't have answers. It's because they didn't like the answers. People don't usually walk away from the Lord because, you know, I, just, I examined all the evidence. I, I sought it out. I, I was in an, in an honest pursuit of truth. And Christianity just didn't satisfy me. That's not what happens. People say, you know what? I don't know about this because I still kind of like the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And I have sort of a choice. I can either go with God and have eternity or I can go with myself and have the temporary. I think I'll go with myself. That's what the world does. That, that's, that's why people walk away. And so John says, listen, I'm not writing this because you don't know this. I'm writing this because you know it. Because you have the truth, you are responsible for what you do with it. So take it seriously, John says. Live this out. Grow up in Christianity. Do not park where you're at and do not go back. Christianity is a stream. You are never standing still. You're either being pushed downstream or you are swimming upstream. Okay, he talks about in that first passage in chapter 1. If you walk in light, if you walk in darkness, Christianity is an active religion. Christianity is never meant to be lived sitting down. It's either on your knees or on your feet. Okay? But Christianity is not something we just passively get saved and then wait till we die and hope we don't do anything horribly stupid between now and then. Christianity is forward momentum. John says the world is going to pull you. Don't stop. You know the truth. But truth is hard. Truth is offensive. Don't back down just because you know the truth. Just because you have light. Don't covet the darkness. Therefore, he says, verse 24, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Just like Peter, just like James, just like Paul, all these guys we've read this year. What is John? He says, you know, just, just keep the main thing, the main thing. And here's the, here's the fantastic thing about Christianity. right? If, if you're a young Christian, what do you know? You know that God forgave you. If you're an old Christian, you know God on an experiential level that's deeper. But what do you really know? God forgave you. It's the same truth. The truth doesn't change. Your awareness of it expands. Okay? So he says, look, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. The truth, remember John, that old command that's also the new command? You just let that stay and keep getting deeper and more real and more relevant and more full, and you just keep going. Keep growing. Don't stop. Let the Word of God abide in you. Walk in fellowship with the Lord. Stay the course. And if you do that, there's a promise that we receive, and that promise is eternal life. These things, verse 26, I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. I'm giving you a heads up. 27, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. He's not saying that there's no reason for a Christian to ever learn something from another Christian. He's saying if you have the spirit of truth, 
If you have the truth of God in you, guess what? You'll know. And sometimes you can listen to a lie and you can say, I don't, I cannot, I, I can't quite, I can't pinpoint it. I don't know what it is about that that's wrong, but I know it's wrong. Right? Because why? Because you have truth inside you. You have light. And light sometimes looks at an object. You shine a, a, you know, a nice big old LED on an object. What do you see? Oh, there's some problems there. Right? You open up a septic tank. It's kind of dark down there. You shine a light down there. Oh, ha, that's what goes in that. Right? Like, light is very revealing. If you have the light, you might not like know exactly what's in the septic tank, but you'll know enough to know, I think I'm good. You know, let's just close the lid. I'm walking away. You'll have the truth. And so you don't need, you don't need to worry about, oh, well, what if I get deceived? What if I, what if I fall into false doctrine? And what if I, you know, oh, what if I don't do this or I do do this? Or what if I, you know what, John's like, hey, you know what? Just shut up and grow up. Okay? Get the old commandment. Stay in the word of God. Verse 28, and now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. He says, abide with Christ. What did Jesus say at the end of the Gospel of John? He says, abide in me. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. If you want to see fruit in your life, you want to see your joy be full, you want to have victory over sin, what do you need to do? You need to abide with Jesus Christ. And he says, do that so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him. What do you want your response to be when you get to see Jesus? Right? Because there are people who, if they're honest, their response is going to be, wow, Jesus, great to see you. I'm super glad I'm not going to hell. Honestly, I had no interest in ever knowing you personally. I kind of just wanted to like blow you off and pretend you didn't exist, but I really didn't want to go to hell. So like, it's nice to meet you. Uh, I had a lot of fun trying to pursue my own flesh and... Uh, wow, this is kind of embarrassing because there's a lot of my flesh that you're now aware of. There are people who live like that, right? And then there are people who are going to say, I have wanted to meet you for so long, right? Which one do you want to be? Let us live such that we will not be ashamed before him at his coming. He's coming, guys. He's coming. We're going to get to see him. John says, live like that's real. Because it is. Because he who was from the beginning, who John saw and heard and handled, he's real. And he's relevant and he's alive. And he's coming back again. So John says, take it seriously. Live like it's real. Grow up. And abide with Jesus Christ. And that is a fruitful life right there. That's life that will be eternal. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word, the power that's in it, the relevance that's in it for us today. We pray that it would go deep in our hearts, that we would, that we would not let the loves of this world pull our attention from it, that we would walk in the light. God, we want to, to let your light shine on our hearts. And there's dark pot, spots, there's corners that we're ashamed of, that we want to hide, but, but we want to let you root those out. We want to come into the light, be aware of our sin, confess it, let you remove it, and do it again and again and again. Because we want to know Jesus Christ. We want to not be ashamed at his coming. 
We want to be people who are waiting and watching and excited to get to see you. So Lord, you told us to pray that you would hurry, and so we do pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Until then, we pray that you would keep us faithful, that you'd go before us and that you would guide us and lead us, that your spirit would empower us, and that we would just continue to know you more and more. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, our King, that we pray. Amen.